Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 44 for June 15th, 2006. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. I smell a Mod 4 episode. I do indeed. Leo Laporte here, Steve Gibson in Irvine, and it's episode 44. And as far as I can tell, that's divisible by four. That's like a double Mod 4. That's a double Mod 4. Yeah. So we get our usual uh, 20 It's even Mod 11. (laughs) Mod 11, Mod 4, Mod 2, Mod Mod 22. (laughs) All right. You math. You math show off. Let's let's get to the uh, questions. Unless there's anything we want to cover from our last... uh, 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 episode where we talked all about ports. People really appreciated that, by the way. I got a lot of positive feedback. Yep. And in fact, some of the questions that we're going to deal with today are follow-ons from that. So uh, we've got 12. 12 of them. Starting with Nick from New Jersey, who says he hasn't caught up with all the past episodes. So apologizes if he's asking something we've already answered. Apparently As a not. matter of fact, yes. <laughs> he asks. I was wondering about this program called Hamachi. <laughs> we really is far behind. <laughs> It promises virtual LAN functions over the internet, all encrypted. I'm wondering how you and Leo feel about the technologies behind it and the features included. I thought it might make a good show topic. <laughs> it might. Well, exactly. It I did. put it in here. Well, I got a kick out of it because um, he's excited about the show. Uh, I want to tell you, Nick, that there's an episode titled Hamachi Rocks. And uh, I love the title. Apparently, Hamachi's author's wife has been giving him uh, back when we did the show, a hard time about us doing a podcast called Hamachi Rocks. Um, we absolutely <laughs> love Hamachi. So, yes. so Nick, um, if you go to grc.com slash security now, um, you'll find the archive of all past shows. Just scroll down. I don't even know what number it was, but it was, you know, probably in the 20s somewhere um, where I thoroughly researched, checked out Hamachi, had a whole bunch of great uh, email with its author, Alex Pankarov, um, and and really did a complete expose on how it works. And we love it. It rocks. It, it literally rocks. Uh, let me see here. I think it was... No, I'm keep going back through the episodes trying to find which which episode it was. Yeah, how how far back was that? It, it goes away. It goes way, <laughs> way back. Way back. Um, it was at uh, 22. Let me see here. I'm looking at uh, all of our. Uh, nope. <laughs> it was it goes back to when we were talking about VPNs, doesn't it? Yes, it was in it was in our whole you know how to securely connect yourself right. to other machines, and I have to say, I mean, the we haven't talked about it a lot since, but there's a constant flux of of Hamachi questions and and accolades. I mean, people really do like it. My own tech support guy, Greg, is using he, he moved from from my area to Phoenix. Where from where he still does tech support for for GRC, um, and answering questions that our customers have um, who've purchased or are considering purchasing Spinrite, 
and you know he's he's online several times a day and gets responses back to people immediately he had some clients that he worked with on the side who he's hooked who he's completely homogenized in order to get into their networks and do remote management of their corporate facility. Isn't that I great? mean, it, it really is super. Yeah, a lot of gamers use it because it's a way to create a LAN party without everybody being in the same location. Right, and in fact, I remember that um, one of the questions I answered when you and I were together on the call, on your Call for Help show in, in Toronto was a gamer wanted to be able to hook two Xboxes together, and of course the Xbox direct connection couldn't understand going across the internet right. but by using hamachi you both are on a five dot network so you're like you, you know, it looks like a LAN to anything that you want to connect locally and it is of course easy to hook two xboxes together locally right right so uh, and don't feel bad that you haven't heard all the episodes we understand there's lots of good stuff coming up in fact you're going to hear if you're back there, you've got a long, long way to go. Well, but it is worth recommending to people that uh, you know they remember that the podcast, for at least from our standpoint, because we've done so much sort of research and tutorial content, not just current event stuff. There's there's this archive of stuff yeah. at at GRC that you know anyone can browse through, and you'll find lots of really good stuff there. You have a list at GRC.com/slash/security now of every episode, so they can just click through those. Yeah, and okay. of course, you know, transcripts and right. and, a, and a complete right. archive of all the past episodes. And just so people know, I don't know, I haven't really publicized it. Once we open the new site, by the way, the site redesign will happen in a couple of weeks, the new site will launch, but then it'll be fairly easy. We'll have a, a, a complete episode guide. But uh, until then, you can always enter twit.tv slash SN and an episode number. So SN1, SN2, all the way up to SN44. And that'll take you to that episode. So... Um, I, I, it's it's not widely known, but that that is a, a something a convention I've been using. It's funny too. I see people like trying to get ahead of us, trying to pull content from the week before the, the next week <laughs> oh, yeah. or the week after. Oh, yeah, because we you know, it'll, it'll pop up in my logs, and I'll go, <laughs> oh, "Okay, well, we're not quite there yet. They must just be anxious and wondering if the content's already been posted." Uh, it's happened uh, almost every time. In fact, I had to start moving things to a staging area before I upload uh, after I uploaded it because. Uh, people were screwing up the caches, the Akamai caches. So I had to finally, right. finally just you know put it somewhere hidden until the time comes. Ray from Irvine, your your neck of the woods yep. says when I'm behind a corporate firewall going through a proxy server to the outside world, how exposed am I to the IT department when I go to a secure site, an SSL encrypted site for banking or online ordering? Um, does does this does the IT guy see my password, my credit card info, and so on? Yeah, that's a great question because there are there are situations where corporate IT has has deliberately configured their border to decrypt a person's communications and like for whatever reason they might want to be monitoring, they might want to be filtering it, they might want to be I mean it might might be for a a benign and beneficial purpose of for example performing uh, anti-spam filtering or or malware and and virus and spyware filtering because people certainly can get infected over secure connection if the if the secure side of the other end is doing something bad. So what what anyone can do when they're on a secure site is right click on their page 
and look at the certificate. We've talked about this in several different contexts, but not exactly this context. You should see, for example, if you were at PayPal and and you were you had you had an HTTPS secure connection, or Google, if you were using Google Mail securely or whatever, if you right click on the page to, and look at the certificate, the you will see the URL or or the name on that certificate. If it's www.paypal.com or google.com whatever then that means that you actually have a non-intercepted secure connection directly to that site and nothing is is there in, interposing itself what can happen is that corporations can install their own certificate on their on their uh, employees browsers which will allow, essentially allow them to intercept any other SSL connection and proxy it, meaning decrypt it, do whatever they want to with it, and then re-encrypt it, essentially breaking the security completely wow. at the border. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought that once you've established the that you're establishing a connection with your bank directly but they well, and that's and that's the problem it, 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 is that if if a in, in the same way that that certificate authorities can be installed on browsers which is what authenticates certificates it's possible for a local certificate to be created now you know users will generally see some notice of that but that can be suppressed in browser configuration also making this thing pretty transparent so it it is it is something that corporations some corporations do and you know if you're really concerned about not having anyone able to sniff your traffic you need to make sure that's not being done wow wow but again you can check the certificate in your browser and it will tell you whose certificate you've got, and that'll exactly tell you who if you is, actually who is exactly. seeing your data. Precisely. Oh, I I'm have to think about that from now on. Is that still a common uh, technique? Is using a proxy server uh, at a corporate environment? Actually, I think it's it, it's an increasingly common oh. as opposed to decreasingly oh, common huh. practice. Although not necessarily for secure traffic, generally it's it's for non-secured stuff. But but we are seeing as 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 security concerns and spyware and malware concerns increase, there is an interest in filtering all traffic, even sure. that which is secure. Wow. Uh, James uh, from London was wondering in your discussion uh, last discussion you talked extensively about blocking inbound access to ports using stealth and nat techniques but what about blocking outbound ports is it necessary for personal or business users to block all outbound port access and only open up the ports required well of course this is the great question this is the sort of the issue of do i need an an additional personal firewall beyond having just a NAT router or beyond having the personal firewall that's now built into and turned on by default in Windows XP after installing Service Pack 2. And, I mean, it's a good question. Um, Neither you nor I run with them, Leo. Um, But on the other hand, it was during beta testing of the very first version of Zone Alarm, which offered outbound port blocking, which is to say application-level 
port blocking that I discovered a, the very first piece of spyware on my machine and coined the term spyware. Right. So, so without so, I mean, it, you wouldn't have seen that. I would have never known that there was something in my system phoning home. Right. And, and, of course, Microsoft has been in the news recently because their Windows Genuine Advantage program has been caught phoning home daily, um, despite the fact Jeez. that they did not acknowledge that that was going on um, in their EULA, and they're now, you know, uh, running backwards a little bit and apologizing and saying they're going to change it and coming up with strange justifications for for doing so. Um, Many people like the ability to know exactly what programs are communicating over the net. Other people find it makes their computer too noisy. It's popping up and asking permission and so forth all the time, although that kind of facility can be trained. So I think it's really a matter of personal preference. Is it is it better for your security to to run that kind of software, which is going to give you outbound control? I think you'd, you'd have to say, yes, it's better. Um, but as always, there's a trade-off. For more security comes more responsibility, more of your involvement in managing what your computer's doing. Many people like doing it. So I would say maybe give it a try. You know, use, a, I would say, a lightweight firewall. It's, you know, the, the, the Symantec and McAfee products, even Zone Alarm, unfortunately, has just become so big and so kitchen sink oriented, trying to do so much for you that, you know, it, it's a... It imposes a burden on your system. Um, in fact, it's funny. The, the, I, I mentioned Greg, who does my tech support, who who remotely administers a client here in Orange County. Um, he upgraded them to a to an, a newer version of McAfee, which broke the function of one of their systems because. It was an older computer that just no longer had enough power to run the antivirus updates in addition to what the other stuff it was doing. So the only change he made was updating to a newer version of McAfee, and finally it was like the final straw. So, you know, firewalls like Cario, which is now owned um, by uh, Alex Eckleberry's company, Sunbelt Software, Cario is a great lightweight firewall, and and really, if I were to recommend one, uh, that's the one I now recommend Great. because it's just Great. it's smaller and 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 tinier. I would so anyway. But the point is, if you're interested in trying outbound blocking, get a good outbound blocking firewall like Cario, and see how it feels. See what you think. Um, you, you if you like the control, then it does give you more security. Let me ask you this: Are there uh, any uh, hardware routers that do? this i mean that might be a better way to go um it's a difficult thing to do from a hardware router standpoint um nat as we know by default allows everything outbound the problem is that as soon as you're outside of the computer when, when you're in an external router there's no way for it to know what application generated the traffic mm. so so you you certainly could block all kinds of ports, but then basically you're shutting down services. But but on the other hand, Leo, I mean it's 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 not a bad idea. The classic the classic corporate firewall of yesteryear did not allow traffic, for example, to s- remote servers other than those running on eighty and 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 four four three, maybe uh, F, uh, FTP on on port 
21, and then it was smart about about handling FTP's reverse connection. So you, you certainly could run a more traditional firewall, but then all the many other things that that most people are now used to using and wanting to use, you know, Skype and peer-to-peer and, and you know, many of these fancy services that we have would not function unless you started then opening ports to their remote servers over the ports they want to use and many of these are dynamic and changing and mm. configured on the fly so unfortunately if you were if you were to try that you'd end up you know either you either having to open up so many ports that you really no longer had any security or or you could still have a, a case for example where malware was deliberately using port 80 in order to pretend to be a, a web browser, thus it would go right out through an external firewall, and you wouldn't know that it was something not your browser pretending to be a browser using your your um, existing internet connection. All right. So, so the so, real advantage the real advantage of the of the program running in the computer is it's able to backtrack through the computer, figure out which program is doing the communication. Right. And then go. In fact, we have a question, sort of about that, that we'll we'll be dealing with a little bit later in this show. Very good, very good. All right, uh, Mannix of Canberra, Austria, Australia. I'm sorry, has been. There's a little difference here. Has been thinking about something he calls VM surfing. I was just listening to the episode of uh, Spy Awareness, and I was just wondering: is using virtual PC something like a, a VMware workstation? Virtual PC is a Microsoft product, but or VM- he says, yeah, a virtual PC, a virtual, you know, PC. any one of them, right? Yeah, uh, for, VMware is another one, of course, for browsing high risk sites any safer. Actually, I'm interested too because I'm using now the Parallels workstation on my MacBook to run Windows. Because even if you get infected, he says, it's just going to infect the virtual PC and not the main system, right? Or can, and this is the big can question, the main system be infected through the virtualized system? Um, It's a great question. And in fact, we will be, uh, it's on my slate of things that we're going to devote an entire episode to. This notion of VM surfing uh, is a question that comes up from time to time. Um, VMware was really the first high-profile company to offer this notion of virtualizing your computer. Um, I've, I am, am an owner of, of a current copy of, of the VMware workstation system, and I've used it, for example, to set up multiple virtual machines when I wanted to test many different personal firewalls. You know, I mean, like, I have nine or ten of them, each installed in their own virtual machine, and I can jump around between them much more easily than having to install and uninstall them. The whole concept is that it, it creates a a truly secure sandbox, basically a, a virtual computer that that cannot modify its external environment. It actually is a very safe means for surfing. The problem is it's not nearly as quick, easy, and transparent as firing up your web browser right. and doing something. So, 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 so it can't uh, then cross the boundary between uh, the virtualized hard drive and your real hard drive. When, when done correctly, and we're assuming it's done correctly, that's true. It now, cannot. there are sometimes shared files. You, could, you, could, you can write to the other hard drive. 
Yes, it is. It, and, and, that, and that's really what I mean about when done correctly. Ah, is that, so if you can do any of that, that's not good. For example, they, they, uh, VMware specifically supports the notion of a local network among the machines and file sharing. You can actually use Windows file sharing to bridge your virtual machines together, in which case you're able to see each other. And there are all kinds of ways to to break the containment that a virtual machine offers. But but there are some exciting things happening specifically in the world of VM surfing, where, for example, um, VMware now makes a free player and people have put together Linuxes that are pre-configured with browsers ready to run where you can run one of these Linux VMs, a virtual machine, in the free VMware download to to go a certain distance towards creating an enclosure that is absolutely safe to surf in. Interesting. And that's, I mean, enough of this is happening that we're going to do uh, at least an episode on this to talk about um, exactly how these things work and, and which one we recommend as like the easiest to use, most bulletproof solution for people who want to explore this. Well, and in fact, I, you know, I just started doing this on my MacBook. Now, of course, uh, in this case, uh, I have shared folders. It can read the drive, local drive. So it's probably a little risky. But on the other hand, since it's a Mac, it's not likely to cross pollinate from a PC. So I probably am pretty point. secure. Yeah. Yep. I, and, you know, it's funny, it, it, given enough memory, it actually runs pretty quickly and launches pretty quickly. So it, it might actually be a good, a good solution. Well, yeah, Microsoft is promoting this in, in you know, they, oh, they, they purchased their technology, I can't remember from whom, but somebody else, and they call it Virtual PC. Right. Um, they're suggesting that for, for reasons I don't fully understand, that their normal server software won't completely use all the resources of a hardware server. So you're supposed to now run the server edition of Virtual PC to run multiple virtual servers in a single server. And it's like, okay, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it just seems loony to me. But It's not uh, too much of a burden, though, because it is... Um uh, running on a PC. At least it doesn't have to do any translation or anything like that. Yeah, the purist in me wonders, you know, how you're not going to have an additional layer of something going on, right. context switching and virtual machine switching back and forth. Right. I mean, apparently something about the architecture that they're normally using doesn't let them saturate the hardware resources of a server. And this is supposed to be a way to, like, do a better job of just you know really taxing your your hardware better well, well like, one uh, one thing i guess is that there there is hardware support for hardware virtualization in the new intel chips so that's that's one of the reasons i think people have gotten all excited about this because at least it's supported in hardware now well actually it's been there since the 386 oh it has yeah i mean there there has been this notion of vms you know uh, the old dpmi that we had back in dos the, well they're the, the, somehow promoting the, this uh, intel somehow promoting this new virtualization technology so they must be doing something different uh, they just not. want a they want a new logo. They want they want they want a new sticker. A sticker so, they can put so on. So DPMI this. allowed you to do this before. It was yeah, the, the DOS protected mode interface right. was a context switching. I mean, you right. remember qu- quarter sure. deck and sure. there I mean yeah. that was all virtualization. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Hmm. Interesting. Dave Matthews of Richmond VA wonders about the alternative Linksys firmware. We've all maybe 
you haven't, but I've certainly been hearing a lot about this. Uh, he wants to hear your thoughts about the various hacks for Linksys routers, particularly for the WRT54G, uh, which is a very apparently hackable router. And there's open WRT. There's a lot of different uh, forms. Are they more secure than uh, what comes on the Linksys? Well, that's, an, a, that's a great question. I, I wanted to, to respond to it because, as you say, there is a, a, a continual buzz about this idea. We've talked about it, in fact, in the context of, of OpenVPN, um, our VPN system of, of, of choice, because there are some, op- there are some opportunities to run a, a, an OpenVPN server on a Linksys. Backing up a little bit, the idea is that, you know, as we're familiar, um, many of these personal routers, NAT routers, allow you to upgrade their firmware when they're typically when they're adding features or fixing bugs. You download the latest firmware and and go through some process to to update the firmware that's that's burned in the router. Well, Linksys, it turns out, um, and among other among, among other routers, is using Linux as the core OS in the in the router, and that that brought people to say, "Hey, um, what about putting other Linux configurations into the router?" Which turns out to be completely possible, and is even sort of quasi supported by some of the router manufacturers. They're not that concerned, as long as you don't call them for support, because you bought their hardware, they've got their money from you, and it is sort of a more high-end, advanced thing to do. But there are, it is possible to to install. Um, firmware in this hardware, which is substantially more powerful than the much watered-down sort of generic feature set that Linux provides, um, li- Linux and, or any of these other routers that, that allow you to do this. Now, the question is, are they more secure? Um, that's a great question. When you when you go off the reservation and and use some some third-party software or firmware in your router, you're certainly taking responsibility away from the manufacturer about what this thing's going to do. With responsibility comes power. Also comes, of course, the opportunity for something to go wrong, for you to misconfigure something, for you to have these more powerful servers or services running. Um, If then there was a security vulnerability found in them, um, you might have hackers scanning the net looking for these these hacked Linux routers running a vulnerable version of a service that the the that the base Linux router didn't have. So I mean, it's the it's the standard. Okay, you want to do something more fancy, you need to take some responsibility for it. So well, and you're trusting what others have done. You're ter- on the other hand, it's all open source. This is right. all open source technology, so it's it's inherently more trustable. So I would say, if you're wanting to do that, make sure you're paying attention to uh, and are a member and have joined to whatever security lists or bulletin system they have, and that you're you are keeping that firmware up to date because you want to stay ahead of any problems that are found because they could be then exploitable whereas the base generic firmware would be less so right 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 but i mean you know for um i i i have a um a wrt is it the 54g 54g yeah um and i flashed it because i wanted to play around with with sip with voip Ah. and you 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 can install a complete sip system 
in one of these routers and That's and create cool. <laughs> oh i mean it's it's amazing and i mean and they've got trim, i mean the you know the, it's really a little linux as you say a little linux computer that you can do a lot with i mean it is absolutely running linux and there are there are some builds of this that are very feature packed I mean, it's right. amazing they're really building tight little systems with all kinds of of cool additional features so um pe- people could google open wrp um uh, excuse me wrt oh i uh, yeah yeah exactly yeah, wrt yeah um it, it, it's the open what does it stand for um well wrt is whatever the, the linux calls that router uh, wireless router thing yeah i thought there was some <laughs> acronym for it anyway it? yes all right uh, google open wrt and um you'll see a lot of stuff there's a lot of stuff yeah, a lot of fact, resources w- wikipedia has an article on it with a good link to the various projects like ddwrt and hyper wrt and Right. Uh, Svea Softs was one of the early ones that allowed you to create an op- a, a wireless access point that you could charge people for and stuff. That was really cool. Um, Hamachi user, back to Hamachi, I see. Darren Govey of uh, Chertsey, Surrey, UK, writes, You guys are always saying that universal plug-and-play is a bad thing. I'm starting to sound Australian, I'm sorry. <laughs> Security-wise. But the latest beta version of Hamachi includes a feature for automatic UPnP configuration. They claim it poses zero risk and should be left enabled. Well, who's right, Gibson or Hamachi? Well, this is a good question. Um, um, what they say, what what Hamachi says on their changes page, referring to this latest beta, is that they've added support for automatically configuring required port forwarding rules on home routers via universal plug-and-play. This feature is transparent in a sense that it requires no configuration and does not manifest itself in any way other than reduced number of, quote, yellow status peers, unquote. And it's a very easy way to do it. He says the feature, uh, as Alex writes, the feature may be turned off completely by using respective option and preferences system. Note, however, that Hamachi does not depend on infamous SSDP Windows service, and therefore having UPnP feature enabled poses zero risk to your system. <laughs> we, we encourage everyone to keep this feature enabled as it improves overall quality of the communications over Hamachi networks. Wow. Hmm. Okay, now what this, yeah, this is a problem. You're going to have this to call really, him. What this really means is that Hamachi is doing what we, what UPnP allows, which is it's configuring your router behind your back to open a static port inbound into your router. The reason this is done is that otherwise Alex's servers have to be a bridge between your connections. And Alex doesn't want his servers to be a bridge between your connections. And I mean, and this exactly discusses the NAT traversal issue we were talking about before. Alex does a a great job with Hamachi of, of doing NAT traversal, bridging two users both behind NAT except when they have a non-peer-friendly NAT router, again, exactly as we were talking about in the last couple of weeks. So in order, to, in order to not need Alex's servers, he's opening ports through your routers. Well, the problem is there's no security in the router for doing this. If the router somehow had a way of communicating to you and saying, hey, Somebody's trying to open a port through me. Should I allow this to happen? 
then it would be acceptable because there'd be a dialogue and you would know what was going on. In Mark Thompson of Analog X's research, on the routers he's seen, you can't even tell this is going on in the user interface. So you can't bring up the router's web page and see that, 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 that there's been this kind of reconfiguration. It's all transparent which is, you know, an additional bad idea. Now, the, the security risk is that in the same way that Hamachi, without asking or being able to, or the router being able to get confirmation from you, in the same way that Hamachi is able to do this, anything else can. So it's a perfect example of how software behind your back can be bringing down the security of your router. So I still say... It's a bad idea. The good news is, if you disable universal plug-and-play in your router, then Hamachi, like anybody else, will not be able to do this. The question would then be, what do you want to do about these yellow flags, the so-called, we're, you know, we're not able to connect you. The paid version of Hamachi, as I understand it, unless things have changed, and I haven't looked at it recently, the paid version does allow you to use Alex's servers as um, an intermediary if you're behind, if, if you have a problem with your NAT routers not allowing this kind of connection. The better solution, and this is, this is what I have done with Hamachi, because remember, I've got a, I have a NAT peer-to-peer traversal unfriendly router is just to to establish your own static port forwarding you can tell hamachi in the user interface to use a statically forward forwarded port um, there's like a great i think he calls it a, a magic number or something on the ui what that actually is is static port forwarding so make up a port don't i think it's i think it has one two three four or something in the in the field by default don't use that make up your own port number choose something between 1024 and 65535 put that into hamachi then on your router go there and instead of turning on universal plug and play which you should disable for security sake instead simply set up a statically forwarded port using that port into your computer's IP that gives you the same capability of not having not having Hamachi give you a yellow flag on 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 users still allows you to connect directly there's the the minor security problem which there's no way to avoid of of that port now being opened, but it's a high-numbered port. It's only going to be coming into Hamachi, and as far as we know, there are no security problems with doing so. Moving along to question <laughs> seven. A sharp listener, Brian Hogan in Budapest. Wow, we have listeners in everywhere. It's so great. Had this tip to share regarding NAT traversal. Brian says, you were saying that it's not easy for a person using Skype to determine if they have a direct connection to the party they're calling. So here's how he suggests doing it. Both parties check their you know, public IP address by going to a site like you know, whatismyipaddress.com or my favorite. Or actually, actually GRC.com will GRC do that will for do you it. too. IPchicken.com will do it. Uh, using the chat feature of Skype, both parties tell each other what their own real IP address is. Then you open a command prompt. Okay. He's starting to lose me here. And you run uh, netstat-nb, in Linux be NP, 
Uh, Netstat command is available in Windows, Linux, pretty much any operating system. This will show the IP addresses you're connected to and the programs using these connections. And so you'll see if Skype is, in fact, using the real IP address. If it is, you have a direct connection. Comments. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't work. Oh. Um, it it would it would work if the were if we were using TCP connections, but Skype uses UDP. Oh, and, so something and, like IP Chicken or what is my IP address or even GRC is not going to tell you what the U, UDP address is. Precisely. Yeah. In fact, I have, you know, you and I have a Skype connection right now directly between us, and uh, just for the heck of it, I did a netstat and looked, and there is no sign anywhere that that I'm directly connected to you over UDP. We we do have a TCP connection, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's so, not where the audio is going over. Exactly. So, um, but but Netstat can show UDP connections. You're just saying it doesn't show it up. Uh, well, the one. problem is UDP is not connections. UDP is just packets, mm, of course. and that's the problem. TCP connections you can see, and in fact, I I, I want to put this in because I, I put this question in because we're going to talk about um, in in we'll devote a, a whole episode to Netstat and other connection monitoring programs. There are a number of free ones, and they're 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 relatively easy to use once you know what the information is, and, and they can be very useful for giving you some sense for what's going on in your computer right at this very moment. Well, that makes but, a lot of sense. So it's but, a stateless connection, so uh, you know you don't have any information. About yes, it. you're able to see that that something in your computer is listening on a specific UDP port, and in in XP that 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 um, that NB command will tell you what the application is. That, that that's a new feature in XP under Windows 2000, which I'm still using. I use Netstat AN to give me myself right. a simplified list, right. but it won't it won't tell you which application has anchored the endpoint. There are some freeware uh, the, our, our friends over at Sysinternals have a great little program that, that for for people who want to go poke around and, and experiment with this that will allow you to see what activity you actually have uh, in real time, and also which programs are the endpoints that are are on those communications. So, so it is possible to do it. Um, Netstat won't do it, and in fact, you you would only see that Skype was listening for UDP. I'm I haven't looked actually to see what Skype would show us, but we'll we'll certainly cross that bridge. Right. Uh, Kay Hayes of Richmond, Kentucky wants clearer VoIP. Who doesn't? <laughs> and asks, I have voice service through Packet 8, which is a, actually a very good service. I've had a few blurps, hisses, and dead spots during calls here and there, which may be caused by my network setup. Some people in Packet 8's forum suggest putting the phone adapter in the DMZ of the router. Is that safe? Well, it's, it's an interesting idea. The The phone adapter, I, I guess it's it's a piece of hardware yeah. which is is running. And in I fact, have a Packet 8 phone. I can, I can fill you in on that. It's exactly right. as you say. It's like a Vonage adapter or any other adapter. And it turns out that because of the problems people have being behind NAT, this is standard advice is is that is that you know in fact i've run across this several times where people the the uh the, the support people and the official configuration suggests that you you put your voip device in your router's dmz that is to say any unsolicited packets coming at your router 
will be forwarded to the IP of your VoIP phone that allow that allows it essentially to create um, or or to to accept incoming connections from the outside world. Um, it's relatively safe. I mean, it, it's it's a better idea to get a second IP. And and if you can, if it's practical, to put a, a a a switch or a hub in front of your router, put your phone outside of your router, that is upstream of your router, and then leave your router configured tightly without a DMZ. Um, but uh, well, what's it really the risk? Is, I mean, the phone isn't going to even if the phone's attacked. It's a dumb beast. There's not much you can do to it. Is does a DMZ somehow make my the network inside uh, the protection less more vulnerable um it probably doesn't it it does mean that unsolicited traffic is coming into your network right. um although since there is no ability for any sort of arp games to be played remotely arp won't cross the router's boundary and 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 then you know just it, isn't being sent by your ISP across from 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 external sources. I, I think you're really pretty safe. Generally, Vonage recommends putting its t- uh, terminal adapter, its voice adapter, outside your router uh, and uh, passing through to your router because uh, all of these have a pass through. So, um, and I, they say it's because they can't do quality. And this is interesting. They can't do quality of service adjustments if it, the the voice adapter is inside the router. Ah, uh, that probably makes sense. You yes, I, I, right. So it may be. In fact, you do get better results. I don't know what Packetate's uh, recommendation is. In both, I use Vonage and Packetate. In both cases, I put them inside the router. But you're right; you do get occasional interruptions. So I don't know if that would be any better if we're bare on the network. Al Pitchard of Wildemar, California, wonders: Can a virus damage a CPU? There was an interesting question because there are. There are well. First of all, it it brings up the interesting question about whether the virus would want to damage the CPU. As we know, the the new game is to acquire computers as opposed to just infect them for the fun of infecting them or to destroy them. Um, it's I you know through the years we've always remarked those of us who who are focused on security that viruses have not been more damaging than they have been i mean you've got code running in your machine that could do anything most of the time it just you know tries to propagate and and replicate itself and tries to live rather than destroying the machine on which it's living now there have been some notable exceptions the the chernobyl virus also known as the CIH virus, was something that was nasty. It didn't damage the CPU, but it did two things that were certainly damaging. It it erased the first megabyte of hard drives it had access to, which was certainly disconcerting for people who had data on their drives. And the other thing it did was it, it flashed the BIOS with garbage which which destroyed your bios (laughs) that's mean um yeah and and so it was really a problem bioses you know which can be reflashed will will allow themselves by software of course to to be destroyed the other possibility is that um, um, hard drives can have security features which can be engaged and enabled and, and locked and again 
that can cause problems for people. But for what well, we haven't really seen that problem. Now, the CPU itself, so far, we have no technology that would allow a CPU to be changed inherently. There's been some talk about, you know, softer hardware on CPUs, but that hasn't happened yet. So, so no, there's there's no way for a CPU to be damaged. I mean, you could imagine some strange things like maybe talking to the BIOS and changing the, the, the CPU speed or voltage and things, because, of course, a lot of that is under control of software now. But that hasn't been done. And, again, it wouldn't damage the CPU. It might just cause your, 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 your system to hang. But, in general, viruses are not wanting to be destructive that way because they're wanting to take over people's computers and use them for sending spam, for launching denial-of-service attacks on other people. Basically, they are wanting to use your machine as a resource and an asset, not to destroy it. So, uh, if it were Sherlock Holmes talking, you'd say, No, Watson, there is neither means nor motive. You can you can rest assured you're safe. Well, actually, I guess there is means because any virus could be, for example, deleting files. And in fact, you but know, couldn't hurt the, your CPU. Couldn't hurt your CPU. We don't know of any way to do that. While I'm on the topic, though, it is worth mentioning that we do have these new extortion viruses now, which are encrypting your files. Yes. And then holding you ransom. Oh, I think it's it's it's. <laughs> it's very clever. I don't want to give any credit to the people who came up with this because it's a you know it's well, certainly some flaws in the in the in the plan since it, you have to somehow get the money to these people and I think that's yes, a good that yes that of course <laughs> is that of course is the glitch but 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 what I okay I'll say admire what, what I admire <laughs> about this from a cleverness standpoint is that if a virus destroyed the contents of your drive well it's hurt everybody if it encrypts your drive now. Of course, this whole scenario, for those who don't know, is that the virus encrypts your drive, then tries to extort money from you in order to decrypt it. And so it's like, well, that's you know, an interesting scam that uh, has, has surfaced in the last few months. And, but as you say, Leo, it's difficult for these people not to immediately get caught right. because they need somehow to receive money. <laughs> Raphael Wolf of Warsaw, Indiana, has just heard about firewalking. Can you talk about firewalking, please, he says. I've just stumbled onto this. Apparently, the term has been around for 10 years or so, as I understand it, although I'm not sure I do. The idea is to keep pinging IP addresses until you reach a firewall, then use different tools to ping through the firewall. Is it still possible today with NAT? In other words, you look for firewalls and then exploit uh, holes in them. Yeah, it's an interesting It's an interesting idea. We've talked about when we covered how the Internet works. We talked about this this the notion of using a trace route to determine the path your packets take and the way trace route works is it deliberately sets short ttls uh, that is to say the time to live in the packet and as as we'll remember from from that podcast those who haven't heard that may want to listen to it because it was actually a, a fun series we talked about how the internet works the, the time to live is not measured in time. It's actually measured in hops. As you move from one router to the next, each router decrements the TTL, the time to live in the packet. When that hits zero, the, the router will not forward the packet further. Instead, it sends back a message to the sender saying, uh, sorry, for whatever reason, this packet expired on the Internet prior to reaching its destination. 
So what firewalking does, it, it's it's an attempt to to find some location on the uh, well on the internet or in your path between you and a, and a remote location, anywhere between you and a remote machine, find where there's a, a filtering going on. And, and, and what, what happens is, rather than using ICMP packets, those standard sort of plumbing packets of the Internet, which is what a ping is, rather than using an ICMP packet with short TTLs, firewalking uses protocol carrying packets like TCP or UDP and emits them with shorter TTLs in order to in order to find the location where something is blocking that protocol so for example if if you were to if you're able to get the 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 protocol past a firewall by by using a longer TTL you would then you would then walk that TTL backwards until you found something that was blocking it. And so, for example, by by sending packets aimed at different ports with long TTLs, you might find that 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 they were both being blocked at some point, and then you you're able to by adjusting the the, the time to live, you can determine where there's a difference in their being sent back, which allows you to determine where along the path something is blocking it. That gives you, essentially, it gives you the IP address of the device which is doing the filtering, which you can then, presumably, use other tools to attack. So it's it's something that, you know, it's, it's like deep hacker firewall technology that isn't really apropos today because net routers are not vulnerable to to any of these kinds of exploits they're they're more in the older days where 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 devices for example might have a known vulnerability you might be running an old cisco firewall that had a known vulnerability and there was a way to like locate that and then exploit it once you were able to get its ip interesting so but, you don't you, you know, just don't see it very often anymore yeah yeah theoretically possible i guess well, yes, yeah, still, still there, and you know, it, it, I, I liked it, and I wanted to answer the question because it's sort of cool <laughs> leveraging of the way the internet works, right. in, you know, and in, in, in it represents that very cleverness that we we've seen from 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 hackers of yesteryear. Marcus Kazmarek and Kanai Alaska wants better Skype connections. <laughs> doesn't it? Doesn't? Here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that I've been listening from the beginning, you said that you made Skype operate over a certain port. I have it on a specific port, but is there anything more I need to do to make it work like you guys on the podcast? We get such great audio on Skype. Yeah, we do. And the reason is we have done one thing more. I wanted to answer Marcus's question because lots of people are writing asking how to get quality like you and I have with Skype, Leo. And and so you have to do two things. He's done one. He's he's told Skype to use a specific port. The second thing you have to do is and we referred to this earlier is called port forwarding. There's tons of information on the net about port forwarding. Um, so there's and I'm sure even on on the Skype site if you, if you looked at something about how to configure Skype for port forwarding and also your NAT router. What you have to do is log on to your NAT router typically through a web page 
and set it up so that it forwards that port which you have told Skype to use through to the IP address, the the private IP address that that computer running Skype is on. It'll probably be 192.168.0.1 or .1.1 or, or something like that. And the idea being then that, that that allows Skype to make the same kind of direct machine-to-machine connection that, that, that Leo and I use. And that's all there is to it. So tell Skype to use a static port, a fixed port number, and then send that port number through your NAT router to your machine. It can be that's any, the key. any number above 1,024. And in, in my case, um, I have, uh, let's say, I, this is actually not the port I use, but let's say I use 11111, easy to remember, five ones. I've gone into port forwarding on my Linksys. I say Skype 11111 to 11111, and protocol is UDP, right? Yep. And then uh, I just say uh, uh, the IP address of my the machine that we use, which oh, it looks like I have it wrong. <laughs> Come to think of it, so uh, I may. But does it now have to be done on both sides or just one side? Um, it it really only needs to be done on one side, but both sides is better. I mean, basically, you got somebody you're skyping to. You'd like to both set yourselves up this way. You're going to get a super clean connection, and you'd also get the advantage that. Anyone else you connect to who is not all configuration happy, they'd get you'd be able to get a direct connection right. with them as well. Yeah, and, and so as, I'm going to now port forward it from to this the proper machine, which is 205. And, and as you found when when you did this experiment before, it Leo, it it really did make a difference for you. Yeah, we were having trouble with uh, you, you know one of the the other thing that you don't have any control over is how much upstream bandwidth you have. And Steve's got a lot of upstream bandwidth, and I have a business class DSL, so. We, we're dealing with it. I don't know. I think mine's at least three eighty six up or three eighty four upstream, and I and I've got a pair of T ones. You've got so, symmetric, so you're you got a lot. You got a megabit and more. So uh, and that's what matters, right? Not the downstream so much as the upstream. Well, of course, it it both uh, on my, my upstream. My upstream is your downstream. Right. So, so, so your so, upstream and my downstream are what matter. Exactly. Yeah. And. Um, uh, so there's not much people can do about that necessarily. Right. Although, for instance, with Dicti Bartolo, who has a standard DSL, simply by doing what we just described, I've really improved the quality of the calls to his system. That is cool. And yeah. see, I had already done it on my end, demonstrating the fact that that your router was was um, that your router was not being peer to peer friendly, but mine was. By, by virtue of static port forwarding, so now you've made yours so. So only one router in a connection between two needs to do this. So it doesn't have to be done at each end. Only one end will allow you to have a direct connection. Can be done but, unilaterally. You know, if if you're doing it, you, you know, in just just in general, you're going to get better Skype connections with people if you take the time to do this. And again, it's it's better to do it manually than to turn on universal plug and play and have anything do it for you because you're then opening yourself up to anything else that gets into your system. One more question. Steve Gilliam of Pinehurst, North Carolina, wonders about email reliability. He says, you've explained that plain text email can be intercepted, read, and altered nefariously in transit. In fact, trivially done. So, yeah, I'm wondering what percentage of email is delivered successfully in a timely manner, assuming both email addresses are valid. In principle, well, it should be 100% in practice. How much email is dropped by the Internet? <laughs> Do we know? Well, I liked this because it... it it opens a discussion about the protocol reliability and 
other things. For example, Leo, when I when I sent these questions to you, um, you didn't see them at first. No, because it went because... to my spam folder. <laughs> exactly. That's the real. I think maybe the most uh, uh, are dropped by spam filters. Yes. In fact, in fact, that's really the the number one cause now. Um, I do a lot of e-commerce shopping, and I'm seeing more and more a a warning and a caution about making sure you know th- they're wanting to send me a receipt, and they don't want my receipt to the the, the receipt bound for me to get blocked by anything I may have defending my borders against spam. So you know you'll you'll see more and more e-commerce sites saying, please make sure to allow email from you know. Bought my cookies here. dot com. Whatever. Uh, it's a real in, problem. I think. I think. Frankly, uh, the reliability of email has gone way downhill. And it, thanks, it thanks has, mostly to spam. Well, in fact, in fact, thanks entirely to spam. Right. The 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 cool thing is that the protocol itself, and this is what I really wanted to address, was that the, the protocol itself is absolutely reliable. If it weren't for for things that are deliberately blocking email, the the POP and IMAP and SMTP protocols, basically it's SMTP that is the mail server to mail server system, it is an affirmative delivery technology. There is there is technology for for retrying extensively, for for finding another server that can accept your mail. It, if your inbox is full, it'll fall back to a secondary server, and that server uh, called, you know, backup MX servers will will try to forward the mail. Basically, I mean, it's a it's a phenomenally reliable system, which, as we've just said, has been unfortunately now badly broken by the fact that spam has, has actually has used that reliability or abused that reliability to such a degree. Hmm. Sad, isn't it? I just read yeah. an article in Security Focus saying um, email's uh, dead. It's not reliable. It's not usable. Spam's well, killed it. I can't use it myself. You know, I've got a mailing list. We're still accepting uh, subscribers because I've got. I've got. I've talked to you about this, Leo. I want. I want to do one last mailing when I an, 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 uh, announce a replacement technology myself. But we've got. I'm just looking at the number here. 786,000 subscribers. Can't, can't send out a mailing that big. And that's the point. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sort the list by recency and so, you know, so send mail to the people until it just bogs down too much. But there's no way. I mean, much more than a three quarters of a million email addresses from people who have who've signed up at GRC over the years. Yeah. And I'm, I know that the older ones are going to be dead. But the problem is the moment I start generating email at any uh, at any appreciable rate, all kinds of red flags and alarms are going to go off all over the net, and I will be shut out of AOL and Earthlink mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, major ISPs who will immediately flag me as a spammer. And so I'm just going to have to trickle this mail out at a very slow pace yeah. and, and take my lumps. I want to do one final mailing to people. Um, so anyway, that's my plan. It'll be an interesting experiment to see how uh, how well I'm able to do. Steve is banned for it. <laughs> oh, and I'm not doing it from GRC. I'm gonna. Oh, yeah. I, I'm doing it from a from a completely disjoint IP range 
and I have I have the domain grcmail.com because I don't want to in any way contaminate right. my ability to send uh, email receipts to to Spinrights customers. Well, and unfortunately, that IP address will then be contaminated for years to come. I don't know what the half life is of black holes, but it's <laughs> it's going to be useless for a long time to come. It really will be. It's too bad. It really is too bad. Steve, we've answered all 12. Perfect. And we had a a nice hour show. Good job. And, you know, speaking of spam filtering and security, I I do want to mention our sponsor, Astaro Corporation, makers of the great Astaro Security Gateway. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, as well as a complete VPN... Uh, and intrusion protection and content filtering and an industrial strength firewall. I mean, this really does it all. In a single, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance, you want to contact Astaro. It's www.astaro.com, or you can call 877-4-ASTARO, toll-free, to schedule a free trial of an Astaro security gateway appliance in your business. And, of course, the home version is still available for download for free at ASTARO.com. You know, Leo, it, it is worth mentioning, probably, that that this thing is not just a static box that sits there, but that what you get when you subscribe, whether you're a home user or a corporate user, is you get them remotely managing and updating this oh, yeah. with latest virus and spyware signatures and everything. So, I mean, it, it's it's the, the, the rough equivalent is running some anti-spyware stuff on your own computer where you've got it continually phoning home in order to check for updates and 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 new stuff and of course what 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 this thing does is it's an appliance that protects your entire network but it's not just it doesn't sit there and get old it's being continually renewed and 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 being maintained current i mean it's a great solution we're going to start having you do the commercial steve (laughs) we're very we are very happy it's really nice to have a sponsor that we really can get behind it's cool technology and i've been wanting to explain for 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 some months now that you know that that's what this is that i mean that that it is remotely managed and updated um and and continually maintained for you very good Steve, we, uh, we've wrapped this guy up, this puppy with a string and a bow and everything. Uh, but we'll be back next week to talk more about security, the Internet, your uh, computer. I love doing this show. I'm so glad that, uh, that we found such a big audience, such a, such a great bunch of people. We do thank our friends at America Online for providing us with the bandwidth, as always. And if you want to know more about the things we talked about, go to Steve's website, grc.com slash security now. That's where you'll find 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired and, of course, thanks to Elaine, transcriptions of every episode so you can read them as well as listen to them. And sometimes with the more complicated subjects, that's a real boon. I don't know how Elaine does it. We also want to remind you that GRC.com is the home to SpinWrite, which is the world's best file maintenance, hard drive maintenance and uh, recovery utility. There is nothing better. Uh, you can find out more about SpinWrite by visiting SpinWriteInfo.com. That's where you'll find a whole bunch of great testimonials. Actually, SpinWrite.info. I'm sorry. SpinWrite.info. <laughs> don't go. I don't know what you'd get if you go to the other place. Well, yeah. And, you know, Leo, I, I was thinking about this. It really is. It is SpinWrite's users and owners that support that's GRC true. and this podcast. That's true. I mean, it, it's the people who are who are buying SpinWrite and and using it to keep their drives in good health and and to repair damage. I mean, they're they're my sponsors. Yeah, and if, if Steve would if would have to have a job if it weren't for SpinWrite, so we're glad that you have the time to do both SpinWrite and this podcast. We really appreciate it and all the great stuff you're doing. I know your cookie, uh, your third party cookie stuff is coming along. I just looked at a 
a beta page of that. That's exciting. I'm really yep. excited. And I'm, I'm adding uh, menuing to the GRC site so people will be able to find no. all the stuff. So Steve, how, mo- how 21st century. You're yeah, amazing. it's uh, well, and well, because I, I, w- I want to do the whole new third party cookie stuff, and right. of course, I've still got the open VPN project to, to get wrapped up. And that is not I, give, we have not given up on that. Nope, I, I it's gonna happen, but it's funny as, as I think about adding this content, it's like, okay, how's anyone gonna find it? Because my home page is kind of a mess, <laughs> you and need some you know, navigation. I mean, yeah, we need navigation. If you want to so get I'm, Amber I'm, and her team to help you, if you need some I'm, help, but uh, no, I got I you know you me. I want to roll it myself. <laughs> I, it yourself, I want no JavaScript, no scripting at all. I'm you know I'm learning how CSS works, and boy, what a nightmare that is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Steve, Steve, Steve. Maybe we'll do a story on that sometime. That's we'll have something soon. <laughs> Steve Gibson, always a pleasure. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next Thursday. Thanks, Leo. On security now. Security now.